Last Sunday, we looked at the first invasion of Jerusalem and exile, where Daniel and his friends were relocated to Babylon to undergo reprogramming and reassignment. Reprogramming had to do with teaching these young men the language and literature of the Chaldeans, as well as a new diet. They were to eat, begin to eat things that were way different from what they were used to eating. Reassignment had to do with appointing them to serve King Nebuchadnezzar as well as his gods. That's what we looked at last week in verses 1 through 7. This morning we're going to look at how these young men responded to what was going on, to what was happening to them. Let's pray so that we can get right to work expounding this marvelous text. Father, again, we come to you during this moment of worship. It's the worship of you through the teaching and preaching of Scripture, which is the centerpiece of the church service. We thank you for this divinely appointed time that we have. May we make the most of it, paying attention, taking notes, learning and growing. And and the growing part's not going to be up to us. It's going to be up to the Holy Spirit. So we pray that you would anoint this place and each person here with this very Holy Spirit of God, that he might take the truth and apply it to our hearts and make us a little bit more like Jesus. May we learn from you today. May we humble ourselves. May we be in awe of you and of your word. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 8. We're just going to get right into it because there's a lot to cover. Verse 8. Look at that verse with me, okay? What version was Dan reading from? The NASB? Okay. I like some of the phrasing in it. It's a little different than the ESV, but that's okay. And I'm pretty sure that we'll be able to parallel everything. But thank you, Dan. Verse 8, I'll read it. But Daniel, is from the ESV, as I said. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Stop right there. What does that word resolved mean? You see it there? Resolved. What does it mean? Well, I think Dan's version kind of describes it in its meaning. I think that you said that he had made up in his heart or he had made up his mind. That is what resolved means. In the Hebrew here, it, it has to do with the position or the attitude of Daniel's heart. In other words, Daniel was determined in his heart at the center of who he is not to defile himself with the king's food and the king's wine. Verse 8 shows us several things about Daniel, or if you want to say reveals several things about him, I have three for you that I think I just drew right out of this amazing text. And we'll be covering several points and things, so you can be ready to write those things down. But the first thing that I thought of was that Daniel loved and respected God. He loved and respected God. The nation of Israel, his nation, was commanded to be different from the surrounding nations. The Mosaic law, the Jewish law, if you will, illustrates how they were to worship differently, how they were to dress differently, how they were to trade and do commerce differently, and even how they were to eat differently. 
Now, Nebuchadnezzar's food and wine did not line up with the Jewish menu. His menu probably featured pork products. You know, I don't know if they had bacon back then, but if they did, I would have fell. Uh, Pork products, no doubt. And also things that would have been sacrificed to his idol gods. He used to take a lot of food and put it on altars and devote it and commit it to their false gods. And so the Israelites were commanded to stay away from pork because it's unclean, to stay away from things sacrificed to idols, and so on. And there's no doubt that Nebuchadnezzar's menu featured many of those things. In fact, they say that a lot of the Gentiles, that's pretty much what they ate. And there's another rule that was in place according to the Mosaic Law. Jews could not eat food that was prepared by Gentiles. Whatever a Gentile touched became defiled. And if a Jewish person touched something that a Gentile, non-Jew, had touched, they would become defiled. So they could not eat foods that were even prepared by Gentiles. They couldn't do that. They had to stay away from it. And the Jews were also to stay away from what they called in the Old Testament strong drink. Strong drink. So when they drank wine, because they did, they would water it down big time. Sometimes as high as nine parts water to one part wine. Okay, so if they drank wine, they would really water it down because, you know, if it was in its full strength, it would be considered strong drink, which would be against the Mosaic law, thus leading to drunkenness potentially, and that's a sin. And so they had to stay away from pork. They had to stay away from things sacrificed to idols. They had to stay away from things prepared by Gentiles. And they had to stay away from strong drink. In other words, they had to cut it with water. They had to do it. Now Daniel loved and respected, and we might even say he revered, because that's what respect is. Or in the Scripture, sometimes respect is translated as fear. Not fear that he's going to kill you and destroy you, but just the fear of him in the respect sense. Daniel loved and he revered or respected God to the point, okay, to the point that he was unwilling to break these dietary commandments and thus defile himself and dishonor his God. He loved and respected God. Secondly, Daniel had integrity. He had integrity. We see an example of integrity from this text. Integrity has to do with being the same godly person at all times. Daniel was godly when he lived in Jerusalem. And in verse 8, it shows us that he was godly when he got moved to Babylon. This means he had integrity. Daniel was a righteous dude who loved God and served God and obeyed God while he was in Jerusalem. He did the same thing in Babylon. That's integrity. Wherever he went, he was a godly man. He didn't switch. He didn't change. Well, I want to make a good appearance in Jerusalem, but when I get out in these pagan pagan territories, I'm just going to not act, you know, I'm just going to do what I want. He had integrity. He was the same guy wherever he went. I like to say that Daniel was not a Sunday Christian. One who loves and obeys Jesus while at church, but acts like a pagan during the rest of the week. I think we're all guilty of that to some degree. You find yourself getting wrapped up in the goofy conversations and dumb jokes and gossip and these sorts of things in these places that we work, especially if you work in a secular place or in a church. They happen there too. Having integrity means being the same godly person at all times. 
Daniel was full-time. He was a full-time Christian at church, at his workplace, at his home. And that is what God has called us to be, full-time Christians. Not here and there, but everywhere. We are to love and obey Jesus Sunday to Sunday. And wherever we go, at home, at work, at church, at the store, while on vacation, when we're out with our our buddies, when we're out with our girlfriends, etc., etc. We are to be the same godly person at all times and in all places, just like Daniel. We are called to have integrity. Number three, Daniel was faithful. Daniel was faithful. You see, Daniel had to make a decision. He could either comply with the rules of this new kingdom and king or be faithful to his God. He had to make a choice. Verse 8 shows us that he chose faithfulness over compliance. He was resolved not to defile himself, and he took action. He actually went farther than just thinking about it and believing it. He actually took some action and went to the chief eunuch and asked to abstain. There are many in the church today who lack action. These men and women and children spend a great deal of time talking about truth and agreeing with truth. But when it comes to actually living it out, nope. And yet Daniel was faithful to the truth in heart, faithful to the truth in word, and faithful to the truth in deed. And that, my friends, is what God is looking for with His people. In life, we will be faced with scenarios where we will have to choose between faithfulness or compliance. And hopefully, we will respond like Daniel and choose faithfulness. A question came to mind as I was thinking about Daniel's integrity and faithfulness and these things. And, and I thought to myself, from what we see in Scripture here, Daniel was seemingly very good at faithfulness. He was good at these things. Even at a young age, 14 or 15. And that's just mind-blowing to me. Why was this? Why was Daniel good at faithfulness? Why was he committed like this and devout? And Well, I think it's because he had tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Just as we sang a few moments ago. He had experienced God's love, God's mercy, God's grace. God's blessings. And because of this, he valued his relationship with God and the glory of God above his own safety, above his own desires, above the demands and requests of others. He also trusted God. You see, Daniel believed that God is good, that God is faithful, and that God rewards faithfulness. He believed that. And our text illustrates this truth brilliantly. 
unlike many others in Scripture. Now, it's throughout Scripture, this idea of God blessing faithfulness. But this particular text nails it in such a way that you can't miss it. You just can't miss it. In verse 8, we see Daniel's faithfulness. And in verses 9 through 21, we will see some of the rewards that God gave to him. Now, it is important to note that Daniel's life was, you know, it wasn't marked by perfect faithfulness because that would be impossible. Daniel was a sinner saved by grace just like you and I. He could not sustain perfect faithfulness all the time. But his life was marked by consistent faithfulness. And that, my friends, is what God is looking for. He's not looking for singular acts of faithfulness. He's looking for commitment and a pattern to it. And that, my friends, is what he rewards. He's not looking for perfection. That was his demand from the Lord Jesus and praise the Lord Jesus that he met the demand. But he is looking for effort. He is looking for striving. And he is looking for consistency with us when it comes to being faithful. Now there are seven rewards in verses 9 through 21. Let's begin with number one. Are you ready? You ready to go? Yeah, it's okay to answer. Number one, God rewarded Daniel with favor. Verse 9, it says, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. That's Ashpenaz, or Ashpenaz was his name. In Hebrew, favor is translated. It means to have a kind attitude towards someone. Now, we call that compassion, don't we? And I think that's why Daniel included the word compassion here. Favor means to have a kind attitude towards someone, towards a person, toward others, which we call compassion. God caused Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to show Daniel favor or kindness and compassion. When Daniel came to him, this favor showed up in two ways, at least two ways that I see here in the text. Okay? A, Ashpenaz discussed the matter with Daniel. We see that in verses 10 through 13. And I find this to be amazing because Ashpenaz didn't have to talk to Daniel at all. He didn't have to interact with him at all. He's in charge. Just do what you're told. He could have easily said. But he actually agreed because he had a kind and compassionate disposition. God put that favor on him. He actually agreed to discuss the matter with Daniel. And Ashpenaz begins by sharing his concerns in verse 10, right? There's something at stake here for him. He could get in a lot of trouble. It says, And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youth who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So Daniel starts the conversation by saying, I can't eat that stuff. Ashpenaz responses, he responds, pardon me, by just sharing his concern. 
and beginning a dialogue. At that point, it had been a monologue. Now it becomes a dialogue because Ashpenaz is talking to him. That's an example of favor, that, he, that Daniel was able to get an audience with this guy, that they were able to talk about it. And then Daniel begins to share his idea. That's verses 11 through 13. That's an example of God's favor through Ashpenaz toward him. That, you know, Ashpenaz is there listening. All right, what, what, do you, what do you got for me? Tell me. Tell me a solution. It says, Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then... Let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So this is Daniel's idea. Okay, well, I don't want to jeopardize your head or your position with the king because Daniel was not interested in that, but he certainly was resolved not to eat. But he comes up with an idea. He comes up with a solution. And, and the eunuch says, I'm worried about this. And then he presents the idea. And then here's the second way that God's favor shows up through Ashpenaz. Ashpenaz agreed to test Daniel. He agreed to his idea. He agreed to his terms. Verse 14, it says... So he listened to them in this matter. And now that's interesting. It says them, which means all four of these guys were saying, hey, you know, we'll, we'll do it. We'll do it. He's listening to all of them. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. Okay, so what have we learned? God caused Ashpenaz to favor Daniel. That, my friends, is the first reward. And that's a great reward because if you have people around you that that will not listen or or show you kindness or compassion or give you an audience it's going to be hard to do anything god saw the faithfulness of daniel that he was willing to take a stand and to do what pleases the lord and, and the lord says i will cause those around you to like you and to listen and to reason with you that's fantastic Let's look at this, right? Amen. That's fantastic. Because, you know, Daniel's on the other side thinking, I don't know how this is going to blow over. All of a sudden, people like me? That's incredible. That must be of the Lord. Have you ever felt that way? Been in an environment, a situation where I don't know how they're going to respond to this, and all of a sudden, people respond to you in a way that you did not expect, and you just walk out of there praising the Lord? Boom. There's the reward of favor because of your faithfulness. Second reward. God rewarded Daniel with superior, and I mean superior health. Verse 15. Okay, so the test has happened. They're eating vegetables 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Boom. Now, we know that vegetables aren't normally a good source for protein because they usually contain little to no protein, right? I mean, that's just kind of a fact. Meat, eggs, nuts, and beans are generally high in protein, but lettuce, not too much. Not too much. If Daniel and his friends had gone without protein for 10 days... 
they would not have looked the way they look here. They would have had to have some form of protein, and it could be that some of the vegetables they ate, like broccoli or something like that, had a little protein, but it wasn't enough to make them fatter in the flesh and healthier than everyone else. So verse 15 points us to something beyond vegetarianism, which a lot of people just line up on this and they develop the Daniel diet and that's it. Look, if you do this for 10 days, you're going to be looking like a Babylonian. And when you speak, you'll babble. No, it points to something beyond vegetarianism. It points to God's supernatural power. A literal miracle occurred here. God supernaturally sustained and even improved Daniel's health to the point that he and his friends appeared to be far healthier than the other young men in the program. Now this culminated with the chief eunuch granting Daniel's request. Boy, there's another example of favor. Verse 16 says, So the steward, that was the guy who was under the chief eunuch, took away their food and wine... They were to drink and gave them vegetables. Boom! They didn't have to eat that stuff for that whole three years. Or ever! They just ate what they wanted to eat. And I suspect that God continued to sustain their superior health the duration of the time they were there working because they would have slipped back into the malnutrition. Pretty amazing. God rewarded Daniel and his friends, his pals, his buddies with superior health. Daniel was faithful, and that's what came to him. Let's look at the third reward. God rewarded Daniel with academic success. Academic success, verse 17a. As for these youths, or these four youths, speaking of Daniel and his friends, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom Daniel and his buddies excelled in their learning during the three-year training period. They literally mastered the Chaldean language and became experts in Chaldean literature. And they grew in wisdom. And I like, there's a little key word in this line. It says, skill in all literature and wisdom. So does that mean that they were, you know, that they could speak multiple languages and had multiple literature forms of literature down? I think so. I don't think it's just Chaldean and, and Jewish or Hebrew. These guys had a broad, comprehensive education, and they excelled in it at a level that was just beyond anything else going around going on around them. You see, God rewarded them with this. He gave it to them. Let's look at the fourth reward. In some of these, they go a little faster than others. For God rewarded Daniel with supernatural gifts. Supernatural gifts, verse 17b. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams... Visions refer to the supernatural revelations of a prophet. The visions Daniel received were probably similar to those of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. They both received visions, supernatural visions. They would enter into a trance and be supernaturally transported 
to another place. It's almost like they would close their eyes and then open their eyes and find themselves in some other place, some other land. In chapter 8, and we'll get there in 12 years, uh, Daniel, chapter 8 of Daniel, Daniel describes a vision where he found himself, and he was obviously in Babylon serving Nebuchadnezzar, but all of a sudden he had this vision where he found himself standing in Susa, the citadel, in the province of Elam. There's an example of this powerful supernatural gift of visions that he had. God also rewarded Daniel with supernatural dreams, a little bit different than the visions. In the Old Testament, God used dreams to protect his servants, to reveal himself to people in a special way, to provide guidance in specific circumstances, and to forewarn about uh, personal future events. Dreams were also used to predict the history of nations and to foretell the four great successive world empires that would be replaced by God's eternal kingdom. And we're going to look at that in Daniel 4, 19 through 27. So God rewarded Daniel with visions and dreams of the supernatural, things that the common guy does not get. Very extraordinary Let's look at the fifth reward. God rewarded Daniel with a high position. A high position. Verses 18 and 19. It says, At the end of the time uh, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in. So that's after the three-year reprogramming process was over, the education, re-education. The chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. So it's time to present them. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to assess them. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. Therefore, they got the high position. They got the job. As I said last week, ancient kings had different servants. The highest servants were those who stood before the king. Not those who prepared food, not those who delivered food, not those who worked on wardrobe. The highest servants were those who stood in the king's presence. They were the king's advisors. They were the king's trustees. They were the king's attorneys, if you will. They were the king's counsel. And Daniel and his buddies were rewarded with these high servants positions. Let's look at the sixth reward. God rewarded Daniel with occupational superiority. Occupational superiority. Verse 20. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Daniel and his buddies were ten times more talented, ten times more uh, skilled, ten times more effective than all the other advisors in Babylonia. Four guys superior 
to them all. And there had to be millions of people in this kingdom. I just find this to be mind-blowing. God takes his four and rewards them in such a way that they become the absolute best in a pagan king's kingdom. Man, if that isn't God trying to make a statement about his glory, about his superiority over all other gods and all kings, I don't know what is. These four men became God's living ambassadors and they reflected his mightiness and his sovereignty and his glory in this pagan land. And I just think that is astonishing. God didn't make four other guys the best. He made his men the best. God rewarded Daniel with occupational superiority. Magicians in those days were not like Chris Angel, or if you're older like me, David Copperfield. You got any David Copperfield people out here? You know who I'm talking about? That is really sad that it's only... How many of you have heard of Chris Angel? More of you have heard of David Copperfield than Chris Angel. This is amazing. Oh, he's some big shot magician today. But we must understand that magicians were not like Chris Angel or David Copperfield. They were, in those days, like astrologers. They read the stars and tried to determine things from the patterns of the stars. Or they were like psychics. Think of Teresa Caputo. I think she's called the Long Island Medium. There's a, I don't know, have you guys ever seen that on television? It's really creepy. Or maybe like Jonathan Edwards, not the greatest American theologian of all time, but the guy who talks to people's dead relatives in stadiums. Have you ever seen him? Now, Rachel and I know of a gal who loves Jesus who was asked to attend one of his events. It might have been an Arco Arena or whatever it's called up there, Sleep Train Arena. And she tells the story how she absolutely did not want to go because it doesn't believe. She believes that those things are real, but she believes they're demonic. And she didn't want to go, but her friend just kept begging her and begging her and begging her. And she thought, well, maybe it's a witnessing opportunity. And so she goes. And she said it wasn't even two seconds before she entered that stadium and felt the presence of Satan. That darkness was so thick and heavy in that room. You know what in the Old Testament people who summoned the dead were called? Necromancers. Jonathan Edwards, not the theologian, but the wacky psychic, is a necromancer. The Old Testament commands that the Jews put them to death when they find them in their own ranks. (laughs) Pretty serious stuff. Magicians were astrologers or psychics like Teresa Caputo, John Edwards. Uh, Enchanters were sorcerers. And of course, the first sorcerer that came to mind with me was Gargamel. (laughs) Ah! Remember Gargamel and the Smurfs? Ah! You don't remember Gargamel? I had to go big on that one. Sorcerers, right? Maybe you're thinking of Harry Potter. Dobby loves Potter. He's a sorcerer, right? 
I was thinking more along the lines of Gargamel. But the way that we should think of an enchanter back in those days, here's a better example for us, not Gargamel or Harry Potter. Think of the snake oil salesmen of the Old West. Those guys that would take and make those concoctions. And if you take this, I tell you what, those liver spots will clear right up. They were like those guys. Rub that on your hand, those liver spots will disappear. You look through and there's a hole in your hand. Yeah, it went away. Psst, you know. That's what they were like. Psychics and snake oil salesmen. And, 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 and for whatever reason, these guys had some pull with Nebuchadnezzar. I think these guys would dazzle the kings and the people of those days with their craft. Kind of like people are dazzled by magicians in Vegas. And that would gain them attention and respect and notoriety. And the next thing you know, these ancient kings would be trying to hire them. Well, I want you to stand in my council and give me counsel. Probably not the best idea. But in any case, those were the kinds of people that stood in the king's presence and gave him counsel and wisdom and, and, and impressed him with their craft. And the fact of the matter is... Daniel and his buddies were superior to them all. And they were not magicians or enchanters. They were servants of Yahweh, of God. Seven, God rewarded Daniel with a long, long ministry. Verse 21, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The first year of King Cyrus, a.k.a. Cyrus the Great, if you've ever heard of that name in your history classes. Cyrus the Great joined together the two original Iranian tribes, the Medes and the Persians, to form the Persian Empire, one of the most powerful empires to ever stand. We always go to the Greek Empire or the Roman Empire, those empires, but the Persian Empire was right there with them. It was insanely powerful in its day. Nothing could stand against it. Incredible. This Cyrus the Great, he is the one who conquered the Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C., so he's the guy that came in and took out the Babylonian Empire shortly after Nebuchadnezzar died. Babylonia became somewhat weakened when that great leadership from Nebuchadnezzar was gone and removed. It became weakened. And Cyrus came in like a bulldozer and took that empire out and replaced it with his own. And took over that whole region and formed the Persian Empire, which is to date one of the most powerful empires of all time. Historians say some pretty nice things about Cyrus. Uh, he was upright. Now, this does not mean that he worshipped and served Yahweh, the true God, uh, but that he was an upright man, that he had pretty good character. He had some integrity. Uh, he was also known as a generous king. Okay, he rewarded people richly, tried to take care of the poor as best he could. He was, a, he was a pretty good king in terms of those things. He was benevolent. That just means that he has a kind of a kind demeanor and a caring heart. 
and that he was one of the greatest leaders of men of all time. That's Cyrus. That's the guy that, that is mentioned here. Impressive person. During Cyrus's first year in office as the king, he actually ended the Babylonian exile. That would be that 70-year exile of the Jews. Under Nebuchadnezzar and another king, those Jews had been in that area for like 70 years. They'd been deported out of their land or exiled out of their land in Jerusalem, Judah, into Babylon, 70 years. And it was Cyrus who actually liberated them and freed them within his kingdom and said, go back to Judah. You can go back. In fact, he took it way farther than that. He even decided to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple which had been destroyed during the third exile uh, and invasion of Nebuchadnezzar. He actually authorized the rebuilding of the temple and not only did he authorize the rebuilding of it, he funded it. There's a passage of scripture where he says that your God has anointed me to rebuild your temple. Boy, that's an example of God's favor toward his people through a pagan king. Now, Daniel's ministry began under Nebuchadnezzar and it lasted all the way into the first, maybe second, third, I think it's the first year. It says in the text here, but it says something different somewhere else. But he lasted all the way into the reign of Cyrus, about 70 years. Now that just to me is a very, very long ministry. First of all, most people I think, I don't know, what's the, what do people live to today in our country? About 72, 76, do they live longer than that? Maybe they do. Maybe the you know, the living lifespans have expanded a little bit because of medicine and those things. But just in my mind, living to 70 is pretty impressive. But this guy's ministry was 70 years. And he started his ministry, right? He moved, he was moved to Babylon at 14. He had three years of training. He probably started his actual ministry at about 17 years old. And then he lived and ministered up into his 80s. He was a prophet of the Lord and for the Lord till then. And I believe he may have died in Susa, the citadel. What an extraordinary ministry or career or, or life, if you will, that he lived. And I believe it was just one of God's rewards uh, to him. I'm going to ask and answer three, I think, highly important questions. Because I don't know about you, but as I was studying this text, and maybe as you were learning, there were things that were popping to mind. I'm, I'm, I'm making the connections. I'm trying to figure out how it works. Okay, God blesses faithfulness. That's the theme this morning. That's the theme of this text. Could you draw other things out of this text? Absolutely. I chose to look at it from the faithfulness and reward side or angle, if you will. And because it all starts with verse 8, with what Daniel did, and then we see all the things that God did. Well, I had some questions coming to mind, and I thought, i got to answer these for myself. And then I thought, maybe you have them. 
First, is salvation, okay, eternal life, the abundant life, is salvation a reward from God? No. It is not. God does not reward people with salvation. God in no way studies every human being to see what they were doing. Oh, they're doing good things. Are they doing bad things? Are they being faithful? Are they being unfaithful? He didn't look out over the corridors of time to see who's doing what and then choose to bless or reward that faithfulness with salvation. It's not the way it works. Salvation is not a reward. And and the trouble in the church today, and it's been the trouble since day one, is that we confuse salvation and rewards and all these things. And there are countless people in churches that call themselves Christians who are trying to earn salvation from God. They're trying to earn the reward of salvation from Him. And they think that somehow their performance or their faithfulness or their goodness or their good deeds, somehow God will take all those things, all those examples of faithfulness, and He'll take them and we'll put them on one end of the scale, and then He'll take their bad deeds and put them on, and somehow this will outweigh this. And guess what? You saved yourself. Way to go. Good job. Here's your reward. That's what people believe. How many of us at one point in our life, maybe before we were even a Christian, but how many of us actually thought that it's got to be based on the scales? It's got to be based on what you do. That makes sense, right? Because we live in a culture that's based entirely on merit. If you do good things, you get good things. If you do bad things, you go to jail. How many of us have confused all of that and thought, well, I've got to earn my way with God? Let's just be honest. I can tell you, I, I lived my life that way before I actually got saved. And I just did not have the willpower or the drive to strive to do good things. I'd do one good thing and 20 bad. And then I'd feel really bad and say, there's no way I'm going to make it. I mean, that is an idea in our culture and in the world. And every religion apart from Christianity is based on earning and merit. In fact... Islam is so frightening that it's based entirely on that, and yet it doesn't matter how much good you do. At the end of the day, it's up to Allah. You never know as a Muslim in that system of religion, you never actually know or have the assurance of saving faith because it's all based on merit, and at the end of the day, Allah has got to determine whether he's going to do it or not. He's got to parade you out and he's going to have you paraded out in front. Now, this is in theory. You'll be paraded out in front of him like these men were paraded out in front of Nebuchadnezzar and he'll evaluate and he'll say, well, yes or no. You never, as a Muslim, you never know if you were actually saved. In fact, there is one way to have eternal security in Islam. There actually is one way. Jihad. That's the way you know. You blow yourself up you kill for Allah, then you get paradise and all the virgins and all that stuff. Okay, so salvation, Christianity, according to the scripture, salvation is not a reward. We cannot earn it. True salvation, true biblical salvation in accordance with God's true living authoritative, you know, uh, objective word 
is based entirely on God's grace. And it is received by faith in the work, person and work, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.8 calls salvation a gift of what? God's grace. It is a gift. And we've got to be super careful not to confuse salvation with rewards. Because I'm telling you, my friends, they are two completely different things. This is the right order. God saves us by grace through faith. And He rewards us as we faithfully adhere to His Word. That's the way that it works. God's rewards follow salvation if you're faithful. Huge difference. So that's the first question and answer. Second, is it wrong for us to pursue faithfulness so that we can receive rewards from God? Do I need to repeat that? Is it wrong for us to pursue faithfulness, to work at being faithful to God so that we can receive rewards from God? Is it wrong for us to do that? Is it wrong for us to be motivated by that? Not necessarily. Our chief end in life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's the Westminster Confession of Faith Shorter Catechism's very first point. And there are a zillion verses they use to prove that. That is our chief end in life. It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now glorifying God has to do with exalting God. Lifting Him up and holding Him above all. All things and all people. He's at the top. He's numero uno. It has to do with worshiping God and God alone. It has to do with obeying God. It has to do with serving God. Those things are tied to glorifying God. Enjoying God has to do with experiencing His love, experiencing His mercy, experiencing His grace, experiencing His blessings, and experiencing His rewards. Enjoying God has to do with receiving and enjoying His benefits. Now God wants us to want His rewards. And He tells us how to acquire them in Scripture. Faithfulness! That's this text. And a lot of other texts. But we need to be careful... We need to be mindful. We need to be cautious not to desire. I want to say this as clearly and emphatically as I can. We need to be careful not to desire God's rewards above God Himself because that is idolatry. What I just told you is is that it's okay to pursue faithfulness to get the rewards, but don't make that your life quest. Don't exalt His blessings and His gifts and His rewards above the gift giver. Don't do it because that is idolatry. We need to be careful not to think of God irreverently as some sort of cosmic Santa or as a spiritual Pez dispenser through that in for Kelly. 
And, and I, I'm just telling you, there are a lot of churches and a lot of people, and all they ever talk about are God's blessings, and all they ever talk about are God's rewards. Now, those are good things to talk about. Those things are worthy of our pursuits. But it ain't all about those things. If, if, if when we die and, and go to be with the Lord, and we just find ourselves with a whole lot of stuff around us, that's going to be like, Earth, we have stuff around us. See, the inheritance has to do with God Himself. We get up there, we get rewards. There's a judgment that's coming. It's called Bema, where we stand before Christ and He evaluates our faithfulness and rewards us accordingly. But at the end of the day, our inheritance isn't the rewards themselves. It's God Himself. God is our reward. God is our inheritance. God is the gospel, is what Piper would say. You can have all the things in the world. If you have not God, you have nothing. But if you have God, you have everything. Amen? So, balance is important. The rewards are great. Be faithful. Go after them. But don't forget to thank the Lord for them. It's all about His glory. And He is our great inheritance. And He is better than stuff. He is better than, than superior academics and superior health and all of the wonderful things that he rewarded Daniel with. God himself is better than all those things. He is. And if you don't think that's true and you like stuff, it's probably because you have yet to taste the Lord's goodness. You have yet to see his goodness and to experience it because he is superior to all things and all others. And when you have him, you have it all. And when you experience him, that's who you want. That's what you want. You want more of those experiences. You just forget about stuff and rewards. You're thinking about him. Because he's so glorious and so loving and so perfect and so powerful and so benevolent so forgiving, so nurturing. You can't get that from stuff. He ain't Santa. He ain't a Pez dispenser. Here's how you should think of him. Think of him as your heavenly father who deserves to reward you as his child. That's what he wants from you. He's our heavenly father. He's our Abba, which means daddy. Don't think of him as just some gift giver. Think of him as your heavenly father who desires to reward you and promises to do so if you are faithful. Third, if we are faithful to God, will he reward us with the exact same rewards he gave to Daniel? Not necessarily. We shouldn't think of this phenomenal, amazing text as a blueprint for how to receive Daniel's exact rewards. And since we are all pragmatic by nature, especially us guys, we try to write down formulas and we try to do X plus Y equals Z, and that's not the way that we should look at this. Don't look at this text as a, as a formula. Look at it as an exhortation and an encouragement to pursue faithfulness so that you can be rewarded. But don't look at it like, I'll get exactly what he got. No, 
That might not be true. God had a purpose for Daniel's life, and he rewarded him with the things that he needed to fulfill that purpose, that time, that place, that era. Daniel's rewards, if you will, were custom-tailored for Daniel because God knows him perfectly and knows what he needs and what he needed to press forward and to accomplish the ministry that God had given him. So those things were specific to Daniel. He had a purpose for his life, and those rewards fit those, that purpose. Also, God does not use a cookie cutter. He's not a track home builder. His rewards are custom made for each of his children. He will reward you with what you need to fulfill his purpose for your life. And that might look a little differently than Daniel. Okay? Salvation is not a reward, it's a gift of grace. Is it wrong for us to pursue faithfulness so that we can receive rewards? Not necessarily, but be balanced, be cautious. God is superior to the rewards. Never forget that. And if we are faithful, will God reward us with the exact same rewards he gave to Daniel? Not necessarily. The important thing to remember from this text is that God rewards faithfulness. And you just stop and think about that. We're talking about God the creator who's infinitely wise and artistic and amazing and beautiful, and he can reward his children in a zillion ways. And he does. And he does it in such a way that bears the most fruit and brings the most sense of security, and, or not sense of security, but sense of purpose. All those, He just does it perfectly for us. He tailors these things for us. Finally, Daniel's example points us to Jesus. Think about these parallels. Daniel left Jerusalem and entered Babylon. Jesus left heaven and entered Babylon, the world. Daniel was tempted with Nebuchadnezzar's delicacies. And don't think for a moment that he wasn't tempted here because he is a human being. He was probably tempted. I'm certain he was tempted throughout his entire ministry in life. Make an exception. Make a compromise. That's what the devil whispers. That's what the flesh yearns for. Just do it. Nobody's looking. Daniel was tempted with Nebuchadnezzar's delicacies. Jesus was tempted with the devil's delicacies. Turn these rocks into bread. I know you're hungry. You can do it. Daniel was resolved in his heart not to defile himself. And he took a bold stand. You know what? Jesus was resolved in his heart not to defile himself. And he took a bold stand. Forget about it. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. There's parallels, friends. Daniel was rewarded for his faithfulness. That's what we've been looking at. 
Jesus was rewarded for His faithfulness. You see, Daniel and Jesus are alike in many ways. But we must remember that it isn't because of Daniel's faithfulness that we have eternal life. It is because of Jesus' faithfulness. He alone was perfectly faithful without sin. He alone earned our righteousness. He alone atoned for our sins. He bled and died and paid the price. He alone was raised for our justification. He alone is now seated at the right hand of the Father as our high priest, as our true and everlasting prophet, as our King of kings, and as our Lord of lords. And because of this, All the glory belongs to Him. Amen? You see, we can get all wrapped up in Daniel and in what Daniel did and get mesmerized by what he did. And some of us saints even give in to what we call saint worship where all of a sudden we exalt this person and our life's goal is to be like him. No, 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 no. If we had a conversation with Daniel, Daniel would point us to Jesus. He'd say, I'm just a foreshadow of the Master. My example pales in comparison to the Lord. He'd say, put your faith in Jesus and don't follow my example. Follow Jesus' example because it's the only perfect example we have in all history. 